Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2. I'm John Norman. Alongside me for today's show, Jared Kimber. And on today's show, we're going to take you back 10 years, almost to the day when the cricket world was rocked by arguably the biggest sporting scoop of them all. It was Sunday, August the 29th. The headline on the News of the World said one word, caught. And beneath it, a picture of a man sitting beside a table counting what turned out to be £140,000. The man, well, he was a cricket agent and a cricket agent to five high-profile members of the Pakistani side who were touring England that year. His name was Mazir Majid. And by the end of the year, he and three of those players, Salman Butt, Mohammed Asif and Mohammed Amir, would be found guilty of conspiracy to cheat at gambling and conspiracy to accept corrupt payments they would all go on to serve prison sentences. But how exactly did it come to that? How did those three international cricketers allow themselves to be embroiled in the murky world of match-fixing? How did the authorities come to find out? And what happened afterwards? You'll hear the answer to all those questions and plenty more over the next hour. You're listening to The Cricket Collective with the Institute of Cricket. You know what, the, the near balls are the easiest yeah. and then the most clear. Then there's no risk, there's no signal, they're definitely happening, there's no signal nothing. These three are definitely happening. Yeah, they're all yeah. being organised. Okay. So the, the, the first ball of the third over. Okay, first ball of the third over. Winning, right. So who, who's going to be opening? That is going to be Armand. Armand's going to be called the first over. No ball, it's a call front foot. No ball. Oh, it's a big no ball, maybe is finding it a little, little difficult because of the wet patches. Then the tenth, uh, the last ball, sixth ball, or the tenth over. Last ball of the tenth over. Tenth over. Who's Just over steps on the front line and looks as if he wants a bit of sawdust. It might be quite greasy. Seen a couple of biggish snowballs actually. One from uh, Amir. He was over that front line by a good half a foot or so. Well, welcome to the show. And the reason we're talking about this story after this time is because of the publication of a new book. It's called The Thin White Line. It's written by Nick Greenslade, who works for the Sunday Times, and it chronicles in real detail exactly how this incredible story came about. Testimony from many of those involved at ground level in the sting itself, the journalists involved in the scoop, the lawyers who took part in the subsequent hearings, as well as opposition players on the field at the time, and ICC bigwigs. Uh, you, may, you hear many shows, books and articles described as a definitive take on a particular subject, but I think that accurately describes this book in question. I'm pleased to say Nick Greenslade's with us in the studio. Nick, thanks for joining us on the Cricket Collective. Let's start at the beginning because this 
was a scoop for the ages, wasn't it? Yes. Well, firstly, thanks for that generous introduction. I mean, I think it it is it remains the biggest sports news scoop that I that I've ever been around um, in terms of what unfolded. I think there's a point um, in the book in which I explain there's a, there's a meeting at the News of the World, and Tom Crone, who is the News of the Lawyer, says. I think in my 26 years of working at the News of the World, this is the most amazing story I've ever worked on because something is going to happen in a Lord's test and we can report that we knew about it in advance. And lo and behold, they did. And that, that thing they knew about was three no balls bowled to order uh, by two high-profile Pakistan players instructed to do so by their Pakistan captain who himself, as you said earlier, was uh, working on instructions from their agent. Um, now, we've never had anything quite like that in cricket if you if you think about it where people knew in advance obviously we had the Hansi Cronje uh, scandal in 2000 uh, where Cronje the South African captain took money uh, from Indian bookmakers to engineer a result um, in a match against England uh, Cronje was exposed four or five months later and subsequently banned for cricket but in this instance a we had the advanced knowledge on the part of the journalists so on whatever it was, Sunday the 29th of August, two, three days after those nobles had been bowled, it was plastered all over the front page of, of the paper. Um, and secondly, all three subsequently stood criminal trial. Cronje uh, never did that. Um, and in fact, you know, there was a lot of debating amongst the Crown Prosecution Service at the time as to how they were going to charge these three cricketers because nothing had ever really come up like this before. And in fact, one of the interesting things about the the cases is, is that they bowled three no balls, um, mistakenly thinking that another fixer was going to put money on them and make even more money out of that via the, on the world bookmaking syndicates. In fact, no bookmaker would ever take a bet for a no ball because it's quite clearly open to individual corruption. You'd be mad if if a punter came to you and said, I want to have a £10,000 on a no ball being bowled in the third ball of the fifth over anyone with a brain would say thanks but no thanks so no one had gone to the bookies um, and put a bet down so it wasn't technically fraud in that sense Um, they managed to find some element of the statute book where they could uh, bring charges and prosecute them and and lo and behold those three cricketers uh, plus their agent stood trial at Southwark Crown Court uh, I think it was 15 months after the the incident at Lord's uh, all four of them received custodial sentences. Again, we're talking about international cricketers serving time, Pakistan cricketers serving time in England, um, um, and then subsequently released. Um, and then we have the story of Mohammed Amir, the 18-year-old at the time, um, who was quite clearly groomed by both his agent and his captain, Salman Butt, to deliver the no-ball. Um, the cricket community suddenly realised that this was a guy caught up in something way, way bigger than him, um, who had been groomed, as I said, and this idea that actually we should show some sort of leniency towards him. And again, it was people within the English cricket game who led that process. So Mike Atherton of The Times and Mike Brearley, they had worked with Amir's legal team to offer as much help as they could. Uh, Atherton did his first interview after his release. Brearley and Atherton both wrote to the ICC. um, And lo and behold... Six years later, he's back at Lords. His first test is back at Lords for Pakistan. Um, t- takes the final wicket as Pakistan win, uh, and is actually now back in England um, for the uh, well has been back in England for the T Twenty series. He actually wasn't due to come uh, to this country. He was going to stay at home for the birth of his second child, but decided at the last minute. So ten years on, we've got him back in this country. Although the other two, there's no route back into the Pakistan side for the other two. I mean, Nick, I think it's worth talking about Selman Butt quite a bit. Uh, yep. You know, you've, you've talked about the crime. So when I when this first came out, I sort of started talking to my sources at the ICC and they knew that he was up to something. I believe in the World T20 in 2009, was it? Yep. Uh, that he had something between five and seven different phones on him. 
There's also, as, as you talk about in the book, the, the famous test in um, Sydney where Pakistan went from, mm. from, an, uh, from an incredible position where you probably would lose maybe one in 30 times. I think the odds were about 40 or 50 to one uh, to losing that test. There were plenty of signs around cricket that this was going on, but the problem is that the way that, you know, the, the, uh, the people who look into cricket, the anti-corruption unit, they don't have the ability to set up stings like this. And also because of the international nature, it makes it almost impossible for them to police the game correctly yes you're absolutely right about that uh the sydney test uh, this was in january 2010 between australia and pakistan when as you say pakistan threw away what was seemed an impregnable position to win um it's a matter of public record that that was under investigation they were looking into that and in fact the same source who had tipped off um news of the world reporter maza mahmood about maza majid had also tipped off the icc around the same time now, the ICC struck up a correspondence with that, that source um, and they'd seen that some of the text messages as well, which he had, had come to and from his BlackBerry, um, his BlackBerry phone, um, which suggested criminality. Um, but as you say, they weren't able to, because they don't have the, the powers of a, a law enforcement agency, they can't subpoena bank records, they can't look at phone records, etc., there was very little to do. They they did consider briefly what would prob- we would probably now consider an entrapment operation, but decided that legally that would be um, they'd be entering into a very grey area. Um, we do know that, as you say, Butt was already under suspicion. He had many different phones, and of course, you're supposed to register um, all your different phones with the ICC to avoid. Uh, any any shadow of doubt as to what you might be up to. Um, they were already looking at that. There'd been a scene also, um, I think, during the Asia Cup in Sri Lanka, or either, either the Asia Cup in Sri Lanka in June 2010 or the World T20 in the Caribbean in, in just before then, when I think Mohammed uh, Amir had been seen um, on the team balcony during a game on his phone. Now, that's a very, uh, that's a very bad uh, breach of uh, phone protocol in terms of what, what you're supposed to do with your mobile phone during a match. So you can't be seen to be contacting anyone who might want to influence the game. So there was a very high level of suspicion uh, around but, um And it, it, there was a very high level of suspicion around, around Pakistan, unfortunately. I don't want to single out one particular country because this is a problem which has engulfed uh, cricket in general. But the problem with Pakistan... Pakistan at the time particularly is that their players were probably among the the least paid of international cricketers. Um, this was especially true when they weren't allowed to play in the uh, the burgeoning uh, Indian Premier League from 2009. So, you know, you think about our cricketers, England star cricketers, um, you know, extremely well paid by comparison with their peers. But what, you know, what if they weren't? You know, if, if you're not earning very much from playing test cricket and you see lots of other people earning huge amounts who might not even be better players. Is that where the temptation comes in? Uh, certainly that came in for Salman Butt. You know, he, he was quite open about that in his conversations with his agent. He saw other players uh, within the Pakistan team, within world cricket, earning huge amounts. And he thought, well, why am I not? Why is none of that money coming my way? Um, and the decision, he, the road he decided to go down was towards the, uh, the fixing road. No balls are called front foot. No ball. Mm. It just doesn't look good. Mm. It just yeah. doesn't look good. Mm. I know, and he went over by a distance. You know, it was not a small no ball, and we haven't seen that from him before. But it's, it is so sad, David, an 18-year-old with that sort of talent, and then for him to be getting involved in this. I'm absolutely sure he didn't go looking for anyone. Someone has dragged him into this, and it is so sad. Somebody has dragged him into it. That's where's Michael Holding talking about uh, the then 17-year-old, 18-year-old Mohammed Amir. Uh, also, uh, Ian Botham. Sir Ian Botham calling the no ball live on Sky Sports Cricket. The year was 2010. Um, the uh, uh, location was Lords, and the test match taking place between England and Pakistan. Pakistan had been 2-0 down in that series, uh, fought their way back into it. Uh, could have actually drawn it, should have drawn that series 2-2. Two, two. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier on, Nick, we're talking about uh, the release of the Thin White Line, um, how Pakistan had often been embroiled in these kind of stories. Actually, if you read your book towards the end, we are reminded, if we didn't need to know, that it's not just Pakistan who get themselves embroiled in these kind of stories. It's 
pretty much every team and a lot of different players from a lot of different countries. There's no, there's no test playing country that can uh, say it hasn't had a player embroiled in a story along these lines. But it wasn't even the first time Mazir Mahmood, the uh, investigative journalist uh, who really is the fulcrum of this story, uh, the book itself, you spoke to at length, had released a story about Pakistani fixing because back in the year 2000, he had infiltrated an international match-fixing ring headed by cricket legend Sally Malik. Sally Malik was one of two players at the time who were banned by the... Um, Kayum report, I may have pronounced that incorrectly, a report that also mentioned a host of very, very famous names who still get wheeled out in front of the cameras every time Pakistan come to this country. It's something that always surprises me and I don't think cricket does itself any favours in just kind of um, sugarcoating this kind mm. of topic. But give, a, give me an idea of the role that Mazir Mahmood, a guy who himself would end up on the other side of the, uh, of the law, a few years later, played in getting this story to print, to trial, and also the role he played speaking to you in getting this book printed as well. So we go back to early 2010. Uh, Mazen Mahmood's the chief investigations editor and uh, reporter for the, the News of the World, um, probably the most famous controversial news reporter of his era. Um, he gets a tip off from a source which he has described as somebody who was involved in Pakistani cricket management um, saying, look, there's this guy, Mazam Majid. Uh, he's an agent to, we don't know, three, four, five, six players within the Pakistan squad. He's up to no good. You need to look into him. Now, Mazam Mahmood gets lots of tips off like, like this every week about whether it's sport, politics, uh, crime, people doing wrongdoing. And he says, look, I'd, I'd love to do more on it, but I've got nothing to go on here other than rumour and, and innuendo. Fast forward five, six months, the start of the summer 2010. The same source comes to him and says, look, I'm attaching various messages to and from Majid's BlackBerry phone, which I've got hold of. Have a look at those because they are clear evidence of wrongdoing. And sure enough, they are clear evidence of wrongdoing. And what it also gives Mazam Mahmood is contact numbers, how to get hold of this guy. So within a week or so, he's on to him. He said, and this is where, as Mahmood has done countless times before, he poses as an alter ego. In this case, it's an Indian businessman who has got contacts out, contacts out in the Far East, wants to set up a T20 tournament in the Middle East, where obviously there's a huge... Asian expat community, and therefore approaches Majin saying, I need some Pakistan cricketers, what can you do? So at a series of meetings, in, uh, and these meetings all take place in the course of about a week or so, um, he lures Mazen Majid in. Um, initially, it's a sort of, it's a wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of thing. You know, Mahmood or others, alter ego, says, look, you know, there may be other opportunities for your guys to make more money, if you know what I mean. And Majid said, yes, I do know exactly what you mean. I'm already up to that kind of thing. Um, you know, betting, you know, what can we do here? And they get sucked, and Majid gets sucked further and further in because he can sniff money. Uh, Mazama Mood's alter ego looks extremely wealthy and his backers sound incredibly wealthy. So Majid's thinking, great, you know, this could be my meal ticket for the next couple of years. I've just got to keep this guy on side. So Mahmood just, and this is almost the, the genius of Mazam Mahmood as an investigative journalist. He doesn't rush in. He just slowly reels the guy in and wins over his confidence. And then they come to what I describe as the money shot. You know, they're going to meet, they meet at a um, West London hotel and Mahmood has asked for three no balls to bold. And Majid said, OK, my price is £150,000. He'd already handed over £10,000, which is why the final delivery was £140,000. Uh, they meet in a suite in this West London hotel, and of course, Mazam Mahmood, as he's done countless times before in these kinds of investigations, has rigged up the room, the various audio and video surveillance equipment. So it's all there on camera, it's all there on tape, uh, giving the exact times at which these no balls are bowled. Lo and behold, the test unfolds a day later, we get the first two no balls exactly on the, on the timing, we get the third no ball the day later because there's a rain break. So 
the news of the world story is pretty much, you know, cast iron. Um, there's a couple of other things which, which are interesting to look at in terms of how the news went about this. And we talk about, we've seen this summer, and increasingly in cricket, we've seen a lot of no balls, which actually weren't picked up by umpires just because of the way the, the, the DRS system works now as a sort of, as a backup. Now, obviously, that didn't really exist then. So what the news of the world did, it's all right, we've got this guy, He's prom- promising to deliver no balls at certain times. However, there's always the chance that an umpire won't pick it up, which did, in fact, happen. You may recall in the old Trafford test in 2001 involving England Pakistan, when actually the Pakistanis picked up four wickets, I think, on no balls, just because the umpire didn't notice at the time. Anyway, so what they did is they got a photographer in the ground and said, right, you need to train your lens on the pop increase, the, obviously the line over which uh, the transgressions can occur. You need to have your lens focused on that every ball so that even if the umpire doesn't pick it up we've got photographic evidence that this was a clear no ball and we can present that whether it's if we ever get any libel action or indeed in a police investigation um anyway so going back maybe 24 hours huge excitement in the news of the world when the, the test starts um rain delay on the day one um but they're all gathered around the key protagonist in the editor's office um first part works brilliant because Salman Butt wins the toss and uh, decides to bowl. So that means the no ball is going to come soon. So that's great. That's perfect. Uh, and then we get to, I think it's the third ball, it's the third over. Uh, Mohamed Amir runs in. It's, it's reasonable enough ball. And I think Strauss scrambles through, scrambles through for a single. And sure enough, there it is. Umpire holding up his arm. No ball. I mean, that is journalistic gold as I say, you cannot believe you know to be as i said this what tom crone the lawyer said we we knew in advance this was going to happen and it happened and then later i think the final ball of the 10th over uh muhammad asif delivers on time and on the money so two out of three that's pr- that's a pretty good story um it's a very good story. it's a very good story but what about the third part of the hat trick and this is where it gets quite interesting so that first day of the lord's test i think england got to 30-odd for one, and then the heavens opened, they went off for the day. No play. There's then frantic exchanges of text message and phone messages between Majid and his three bowlers, Majid and Mahmood. When's the third no ball going to come? You know, what's going to happen? When are they going to be on, back on play on day two? Day two comes round, and it's still not quite clear if they're going to get that third ball. There's one point where... Uh, Mazam Ajid texts Mazam Amu to say it's not on. And the reason for that is that Mohammed Amir is in bowling the spell of his life. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Four wickets in ten balls at the start of at the start of day two. So there's carnage amongst the England dressing room batsmen walking in and out. Um, and and Majid's thinking, mm, can he really get away with bowling a no ball? And Amazon Mahmood goes back, look, I don't really care. We need this. We need the third no ball. Now, obviously, Majid's not in a position to influence it because the cricketers are on are on the outfield at Lord's. But again, sure enough, uh, Mohammed Amir delivers a no ball. And it, I think that's the one where both and the big and the big and where Michael Holding says, wow, how big over the line was that? And, you know, you look at that and think that's that's a whopper. Um, so, I mean, there's there's. Delight, you know, exultation, you know, within the news of the world offices because, you know, they've landed, you know, one of the biggest stories they'll ever get. Um, and I don't think they'll, they'll ever, those journalists who involved that have ever come close to, to matching that, that kind of adrenaline rush. I mean, you, you would have an adrenaline rush if you'd given £140,000 away in cash, um, which, is, which is a hell of a lot of money by even the news of the world standards, which was the biggest newspaper of its kind. In the age, um, and then we then there's two important things that the news of the world then have to do because this is a crime. They have to work with the Metropolitan Police in advance of going to publication. Now the the news of the world and Met Police had very close contacts, and some would say very controversial contacts mm. over the years. But and the book goes into this in quite a lot of detail. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a matter of public record. Mm. Um, I'm not. not saying anything that, that wasn't already known because um, a lot of Mazama Mood's investigations were criminal investigations which inv- again involved bringing in the uh, the forces of the law so 
Uh, we're now on to the f- Friday night, um, which is sort of 36 hours before the News of the World will be available in news agents. And Colin Myler, the editor of the News of the World, calls up Paul Stevenson, who's head of the Met, said, we've got a big story on corruption. You need to come in and see what we've got. We need to show you the evidence. And Stephen says, OK, fine, you'll have a team with you tomorrow morning, Saturday morning. It'll be headed up by one of my assistant commissioners, Cressida Dick, who we now subsequently got Stevenson's role, head of the Met, and, bizarrely, a cricket fan there. herself. Um, in fact, one of the strange things about this book, when I started working on it, um, was one of the journalists in my contact said, oh, he said you, you need to listen to um, there's a thing on the radio where Cressida Dick's talking about her love of cricket. And she says, I was at the, uh, the test the Lord's Test on the Thursday. I was there with my friend. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Pakistan cricket, not just cricket in general. Um, anyway, she comes in with her team on um, Saturday morning. They look at the evidence. It's a pretty slam dunk case. You know, they they take away the evidence. They say to uh, Mazen Mahmood, said, "Right, we're going to look at this. Well, don't worry, we'll be going to Lords this afternoon to carry out our inquiries." Uh, we need you to do one thing for us. We need you to uh, arrange a meeting with Mazamaji, the agent, at 6.25 at his house, just so we know exactly where he'll be, so we can swoop on his house and arrest him, which Mazamamud does. Um, And then she moves off to Lord's, um, and the moment play finishes on what is now day three of the test... um, they let the Pakistan players know why they're there. There's searches of their hotel room. Um, it's now by 9pm on Saturday evening. It's out on news wires. It's out on television stations. Um, and uh, the whole world knows. Um, and then you get this very strange atmosphere at Lords on Sunday where nobody quite knows where to look as Pakistan meekly lose a test match and uh, their final humiliation is complete. And there's more to come. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. On next week's show, we're going to be looking back at NatWest Cricket Forces Community Day, getting ready for a new season of club cricket. What a different show that's going to be to this one. Uh, that took place at Finchley Cricket Ground. Uh, and thanks to NatWest Cricket Force. You're listening to the Cricket Collective um, on TalkSport 2. I'm joined by Nick Greenslade, author of The Thin White Line. Jarrah Kimber also alongside me. And uh, still to come, we're going to speak to Usman Samiuddin from ESPN Crick Info. And also also find out what happened after the events at Lords. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Well, allegations are only one thing. They're all serious. 
You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sports 2. Myself, John Norman, Jarrah Kimber, and uh, also Nick Greenslade, author of a new book, 10 years after the uh, 2010 Pakistani spot-fixing affair. It's called The Thin White Line. Uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, senior editor at ESPN Cricket Info, Usman Samiuddin, is uh, in the UK following Pakistan's current tour of England. Uh, Usman, we're looking back uh, to uh, 2010, a story... Um, unfortunately, we all know very well. Can you give us an idea? We've been talking about the reaction that took place in England when at 10pm on a Sunday night on national news, it was announced that there was some serious allegations about spot fixing, no balls to order. And then, of course, um, the following day uh, in the News of the World, front page, court, that was the front uh, page, uh, cricket agents with bundles of cash, cash, that was marked and found in the dressing rooms of the Pakistani captain Salman Butt and also Mohammed uh, Amir, uh, Mohammed Asif. Well, there was no cash in his room, actually, but uh, all three were found guilty. Um, can you give us an idea of the reaction in 2010 in Pakistan to this story and also now, 2020? Um, yeah, I, you know, there, there was obviously some shock in Pakistan at the time. I, I think the first... The country was going through such a period that I think the first first thing that a lot of people did at that time was to assume that that this had been part of some conspiracy and that they had been set up somehow. Um, I, I'm not saying that was a you know that that was everyone's reaction, but there there was that was a body of opinion there um, for for a while after it actually, and the kind of you know and, and this was pretty much as, as Nick's book in fact shows. It's it's an excellent book actually, but as, as it shows, there, you know, there's. It was just about the most open and shut case of some kind of fixing having happened on the cricket field that you're ever likely to get. Um, you know, so uh, there was there was there was eventually shock, and I think then there was just a lot of, I, I guess, some some anger, some self reflection at why it was still happening. Because if you remember, you know, 2010 was actually 10 years on from the Kayum report in Pakistan, so that marked the end of that kind of decade, where you know the Kayum report had identified that match fixing had been going on um, the previous decade and it had sanctioned, what, eight Pakistani cricketers. Uh, uh, two of them had gotten life bans. And so it came at the end of that 10 years after that. And I, I, and I think a, a lot of people were just, you know, wondering why it is still an issue. Um, and it had been kind of an issue throughout that entire decade. So I think there was, you know, some anger, some self-reflection, some denial as well. Um, and, and now here we are, you know, it feels, feels like it was yesterday still, but here we are 10 years down the line. Uh, from that day and you know within Pakistan cricket and especially the journalism um, area I mean the the Sydney test um, wasn't that long before that was there was obviously a lot Mm. of suspicion about that Uh, and Selman Butt there had already started to be rumors about him before um, and News of the World sort of even started Were, were you starting to hear things as well yeah absolutely I mean but the thing at that time uh, and I remember writing uh, actually about it because we did a package uh, at Cricket for on like, you know, 10 years on from match fixing. And that was referring to the 2000 cases. But we did this package. I remember writing and, and saying that it's it's difficult to know because there were so many allegations being thrown around. You know, the people like Safraz Nawaz and other guys, they were just they were just throwing allegations at everything. Um, and so when Sydney happened, it, it, it did feel odd, but it also felt very much part of this narrative that, oh, yes, of course, everyone's going to think it's fixed. And, you know, I, I tended to look at the fact that Kamran Akumal was just scrap as a keeper. And so, you know, he dropped those catches. He missed that run out. And, and the team was, you know, the team was iffy. The, the, there was a lot wrong with that team just as a cricket team. Um, so I looked at it from that point of view as well. Um, just, and, and you had to kind of sift through what allegations were real. I think the first real sign was that the ACSU at that time had sent... Uh, a couple of letters to Salman Bhatt and Karman Akmal after the World T20 that year. So that was before the England tour, but after Sydney. 
Uh, they had sent them letters saying that, you know, we basically, we know that you're in touch with suspicious characters and please answer for yourself. And that, we, we'd kind of gotten a sniff of that. And that, I think, confirmed to a lot of journalists at the time that hang about, you know, there is something actually dodgy going on. How deep and how far back it goes, we didn't know. And I think in a way we still don't. Um, but I think that was the first thing thing that, okay, something's up here. Uh, Usman, if you look at, I mean, you mentioned 2010, and um, we may mention it earlier in the show, actually. Uh, sorry, in the year 2000. Uh, then 2010, spot fixing. But, you know, since then, there's still been so many Pakistani players, not just Pakistani players, um, mm. plenty of players. Um, maybe maybe a Pakistan are unfairly, you know, tainted with this because of, uh, of pre- previous misdemeanors. But, you know, Nasir, Nasir, this is detailed in the book. It's, it's quite mm. a list, isn't it? Umar uh, Akmal, who was actually in and around the Pakistan side in 2010, brother of Cameron Akmal, of course. Um, you know, that was quite some missed run out at the SCG. Uh, yeah, Na- yeah. Nasir Jamshed, um, mm. he's been found in guilty. Jail right now. Yeah. In jail, in jail right now. Shahjil Khan, Khalid Latif, Mohammed Irfan, Shazab Hassan. Um, I mean, that, it's quite a list, isn't it? I mean, is it a Pakistani yeah, problem it, or is it a, a cricket problem? Or is it both? It, it's not, I don't think it's specifically a Pakistani problem, but what it does tell you about Pakistan is something about systems and how porous it is, how little protection there is for players. Also, it tells you something about how how poorly paid a lot of players are uh, in Pakistan. Uh, you know, I, I know they have the PSL now, but you know, they, they existed for, until the PSL came out in 2016, they had effectively gone, uh, what, it had been seven years, eight years without being allowed to play in the richest league in the world, you know, which a lot of the best players of other countries had access to, and that's the IPL. Um, their own, obviously, pay structure is pretty poor compared to the rest of the world. You know, they're, they're some of the lowest paid international cricketers going. Um, and, and then there is, of course, uh, you know, they, they don't have, I think, uh, a, a, well, they do. I mean, they do have in place, you know, they have education programs in place so that players should be aware. And you would think, like Omar Akmal got done recently for failing to report an approach. Now, you know, if if after 20 years of having seen this, after 10 years of having seen what happened to Mohammad Amir, Mohammad Asif, Salman, but after 10 years of actually enhanced rehab programs, enhanced education programs, so that they're sitting before every major competition that they have, major tour that they have, to sit down with an anti-corruption officer and he tells them that this is what you can get called off for, this is what you should not be doing. If you're still doing it after that, then I think, you know, it, it's on the player as well. And I think you just, you look at somebody like that, which is why the PCB is fighting so hard to make sure that his ban remains and doesn't get reduced at the Court of Arbitration for Sports in Switzerland. They, they just need to get rid of people like that, essentially, you know, ultimately, because you're always going to have those kind of bad eggs, bad eggs. And I think you'll have them everywhere in the world. But I think what has also happened over the last 10 years is that, you know, a lot of new leagues have opened up. And I don't think these leagues are kind of, you know, hotbeds of corruption. But I think... Uh, a lot of the the infrastructure in place, and I think you know Jared has, has worked on some of these. I think a lot of the infrastructures in place are are porous, so you, so you can get through them. You know, the bookies and betters can get through them and can attach themselves to players. And I think that's what happened with the PSL as well. You know, Sharjeel, that was a big big blow, by the way. Five guys from that second PSL, you know, caught spot fixing on the first day. Essentially, um, it was bad, but I, I think it's it's to do with kind of you know systemic issues that cricket has, which get magnified in a place like Pakistan, where you have a big group of a vast underpayment of players, essentially. The thing is, though, aren't we just giving these people um, an out here? Because you're right, they don't get paid a great deal of money, a lot of these guys, and not in the IPL. But we, it has been proved playing in the IPL does not end corruption, does it? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the Mudgal Committee's report to the Supreme Court in India gave th- 12 to 13 names of high-profile players alleged to be infl- to being um, mm. match-fixing. Now, those players' names were never released. They were, they were granted protection that maybe the Pakistani players weren't granted. But we've also seen two teams in the IPL banned for two years because of match-fixing. This goes to the absolute heart of the game, doesn't it? Because... It's not as though getting more money and playing in the top flight leagues means that suddenly these players aren't match fixing anymore. Uh, yeah, I, but you know, within within every league, I mean, look, listen. Ultimately, there's no there's no limit to greed, you know. And and a player playing in the IPL, uh, there's still grades of what they're getting 
what they're getting paid. Now, somebody like Shishant, who got done for it, ultimately, I, I, you would argue, uh, you know, maybe he had his own reasons. But I think, I, I think cricket, one, gives itself uh, as a sport where it is kind of, you know, the, uh, it, it, is a, it is a sport. It is this kind of event-based sport where every ball is an event where you can have a lot of betting. But the other problem, of course, is that th- there are no laws against match-fixing in countries like India and Pakistan. Sri Lanka has just brought a law in, um, I think, two years ago now, which actually is the, the first big thing. If you can prosecute these guys um, and actually send them to jail, well, that might be the best start, ultimately. But if you don't have any laws to prosecute them on, then what are you going to do? Uh, you know, so I, I think that is the first step, really, for any country, if, if you're going to get serious. And that's a little bit out of, the, out of the hands of a lot of boards. You know, I mean, boards have some kind of influence over what they can do. But ultimately, if your country, if your parliament, if your lawmakers are not going to bring that law into play, um, and I know the PCB has tried to have this done in the past, but they've come up against a brick wall. So where do they go after that? Unless the country is, itself is willing to decriminalize, or uh, criminalize, sorry, uh, betting uh, and, and the consequences of it, then maybe, you know, th- that is the ultimate deterrent. If you don't have that in place, then then you're always going to struggle. Hello, Osman. It's Nick here. Um, I, I'd just like to ask you a question. Um, was it, is it true that in Pakistan, people made the same distinction that a lot of people over here did, that Mohammed Amir as the youngster was deserving of sympathy and the other two were, you know, should have known a lot better? Mm. Uh, to a degree, I think people did, but I think there was a, a there was also a body of opinion, uh, and I actually I guess I included myself in that. In that, I don't think Amir was uh, as naive and as much the child as was made out perhaps at the time. Uh, you know, he was always a bit smarter than that. But you know, if if you go through his case like you have been in the book, I, I think you can make a pretty clear case uh, and see how easy it would have been for somebody like Salman Butt but specifically somebody like Salman Bhatt, to actually manipulate a situation whereby Amir would have felt that, you know, if I don't do this, then I, I, I could be in more trouble than by doing it. Uh, I, you know, that doesn't at all, I think, absolve him of what happened. But I think you can make a, situ- you can make a case that, you know, uh, Salman Bhatt kind of manipulated the situation, this, this young new guy a year into his career. And, you know, you know Pakistani cricket, the young cricketers come in, there's no security until, you know, until ever, really. You, you, only until you're kind of a great, like, you know, Wasim, Wakar or Imran, that you do have some sense of security. But until then, you really don't at any level of the game. You know, you, you 40 test matches, you could still be dropped. 45 test matches, you could still be dropped just on a whim. Well, not on a whim, but, you know, for spurious kind of selectorial reasons or whatever. But I, I think that that would have played into, you know, why Amir did what he did. Um, and I think at the time there was... A little bit of sympathy, but when I, I remember the reaction when he actually came back to Pakistan after after he got out of prison, when he came back to Pakistan, um, th- there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of anger, and I think that's one of the reasons why he became a bit of a recluse and kind of stayed, you know, stayed in his house essentially in Lahore for the next fu- next four years at least, and didn't see anybody. Kind of shrunk his circle of friends and associates, and for a long time didn't even want to come back to cricket. You know, he he was completely he, he felt he'd been burnt by the game by the people in it. And, and he wanted to move on. And he's, I, I think he's kind of been compelled back into the game because, you know, that was his, his kind of living. He had to make some money from somewhere and he had to kind of live and support his family and this entire industry around him. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why he's come back into the game. But yeah, so I, I think it was mixed. There was definitely a lot more hatred, I think, towards and anger towards Asif. Uh, and especially, specifically, I think, Salman Butt because he was a captain and also because... You know, at the time, I don't think anybody thought of him as a particularly great player. And they always thought that he was a little bit kind of arrogant and standoffish. So I think that played into the kind of anger that was directed towards him and Asif much more than it was towards Amir. Usman, uh, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, fascinating to, us to get that kind of uh, insight. Usman Samiuddin, Senior Editor at ESPN Crick Info. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with myself, John Norman, Jared Kimber alongside me, and also author of the new book, The Thin White Line, uh, by Nick Greenslade. No ball, is a call, front foot. No ball. Oh, it's a big no ball. Maybe he's finding it a little, little difficult because of the wet patches. No ball is a call, but that was a short ball that we were expecting with the field clears as it has. How far was that? Whoa. That's like net bowling. 
You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, John Norman, Jarrah Kimber alongside me. And we're talking about the release of The Thin White Line, the inside story of cricket's greatest scandal. It's written by the Sunday Times' Nick's, Nick Greenslade, uh, and he's with us in the studio this week. Uh, Nick, um, so we've got up to the point that the guys have been caught, essentially. And then pandemonium behind the scenes because of course as you mentioned this is a journalistic scoop the metropolitan police have been involved and have been brought in um the dressing rooms the agent um have been questioned their property or rather their hotel rooms searched um and now it's a question of getting the icc involved the drama then moves on after the players themselves kind of, uh, as we heard from Sam Abat at the start of the last uh, section, essentially putting forward the notion that this is a conspiracy. Again, it's uh, Pakistan being picked on. Uh, all allegations, we of course now know that isn't true. Um, but there was a lot of work done by ICC lawyers, followed by legal lawyers. This was a case that was set to run quite some distance. And you've got quite a lot of insight in the book about exactly what was going on in Dubai, where the ICC headquarters are. And also in London, Southwark Crown Court, not too far from the news building where we broadcast here, uh, where the trial took place. Yeah, well, the, as I say, the ICC chief executive of the time, Haroon Lorga, had to fly into London straight away. This this was such a big story that it required his presence. And ironically, he's holed up in the same hotel as the PCB chair, Ijaz Butt. Um, and the ICC realised it's got a major scandal on its hands and it needs to resolve it as quickly as possible. Um, the first step is to get the Pakistan Cricket Board to uh, drop their players um, from the subsequent one-day series involving England. And that's not a, 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 an automatic by any stretch of the imagination. The PCB still digging their heels, still talking of a conspiracy, a setup, whatever you want to call it, and refusing to uh, to leave those players out of the one-day series. Um, they are eventually persuaded that, that is the right course of action and charges are brought by the ICC. Uh, against the three players. Uh, We then, in England, we have another almost squalid scandal played out as uh, the England players and the PCB exchange a war of words when the PCB chairman, Ejaz Butt, says that actually the England players might be fixing. Um, And Andrew Strauss, who's the captain of the England Test and One Day squad, is absolutely outraged by this, as you would imagine. And there's a special team meeting, Corpus Hall, the fourth One Day International, where they discuss withdrawing from the whole series um, as a whole. Um, they're subsequently talked round by Giles Clark, ECB chair, um, and they, they go on and they win the series. Um, but there's really bad blood between the, the two the two camps, which I hadn't really appreciated at the time, just how much acrimony there had been between the England and the Pakistan camps. Uh, this was at a time, you may recall, when England were desperately trying to get to world number one. And, you know, you win a series 3-1, and then all of a sudden you're told that your efforts were basically part of a charade you know Pakistan three Pakistan players were almost throwing the game that ends September at the same time they're back at their HQ in Dubai the ICC saying right we need to bring charges against these three players we've had a problem with Pakistan for a long time as we discussed in the earlier part of the program now they choose to stick to the clear evidence presented in that fourth test um, at Lords um, I think because that was where it was easy to get a conviction, as it were, even though there had been lots of evidence beforehand, as we discussed, lots of rumours that maybe this had been going on beforehand. There's a slam dunk if they just stick to the Lord's test. Um, so first of all, we have an initial, um, we have an appeal against suspension from the Pakistan players in in Dubai, uh, which uh, is chucked out. And then we fast forward to Qatar, uh, January 2011, which is the proper tribunal. You've got Michael Belloff, a very respected lawyer, and two others sitting on a panel judging the evidence, which is basically the news of the world's evidence. Um, And one of those lawyers who was involved in representing the ICC basically said, as far as the the evidence presented by the news of the world, Maza Majid, it was a Christmas present with the most beautiful wrapping and a lovely little bow on it. That was all. You only needed that. You only needed to have him on the stand and you've essentially were hurtling towards... A guilty verdict. Um, now, even then, you've still got lots of, you know, rumours back in Pakistan. This is a conspiracy, um, but that is their that is their careers effectively done for five years, which is the minimum ban they all receive as being 
convicted of corruption in terms of cricket. Still, we have to come forward to the, the criminal trial, uh, which takes place in this country, because obviously it's a crime committed in London, um, which takes place in October 2011. And again, Mazam Mahmood is is the star witness. But, you know, the, the Pakistanis, they weren't going to go down without a fight. Both Butt and uh, Asif pleaded not guilty. And probably Asif had a better chance because the evidence against him wasn't quite as strong, but ultimately they were fighting a losing battle. And they received custodial sentences. And at this point, we find out that uh, Muhammad Amir has already pleaded guilty because Amir's had a change of heart. He's seen the light. He's realised that he should come clean, if only because he'll get a reduced sentence. Um, and they have to serve time in English jails, you know. I mean, I've, this is where the crimes are bad, but I do have I do have some sympathy for each of the three because you can imagine what it's like, you know, if you're a Pakistani cricketer and suddenly you find yourself, um, I think they were in... Wandsworth Prison, which is not a nice place for everyone before they were transferred to Canterbury Prison. That must have been tough for them. It's a very interesting uh, one. When you talk about Asif, as you said, he didn't have the money in his hotel room, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And one of the things that they did um, at the uh, in the trial was, I think they got the ICC lawyers to work out what the odds were yeah, right. um, of those of those no balls going. What what was the actual number? Uh, how, how unlikely was it that that had just happened randomly at the time that News of the World were expecting it? Do you know what? I, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like one in... It's like 15 million to Fifth, one. Or yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's something ridiculous. Um, and of course, all the accused tried to put out alternative explanations. So we had from Asif this idea that Butt had told him, running hard, running fast. And he <laughs> said, well, that, of course, when you run in fast, it's more likely to account for a no ball. That's, that's the explanation. We had Amir, when he was bowling, he did this went through this ruse of looking at the crease and scraping his feet as if to say, you know, it was a slippery outfield. It's a mistake that anyone could have made. But the A, the news of the world evidence, and B, as we said there, the statistical evidence, the chances of anyone being able to predict no balls at certain times, thrown in with the, the text message, the contact with the agent, uh, the money uh, being found in their possession, which obviously only applies to to uh, Amir and Butt. Um, they never really stood a chance. Nick, time is against us, unfortunately, but uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, it certainly brings it back. Uh, te- has it really been 10 years? It certainly doesn't seem that way. The book, uh, The Thin White Line, it's, uh, it's just been released, The Inside Story of Cricket's Greatest Scandal by Nick Greenslade, available Pitch Publishing. Thanks so much for joining us on The Cricket Collective, Nick. It's been a, a fascinating hour. Uh, Jared as well. Uh, good to... Uh, good to get you on the show we will uh, be returning of course the Cricket Collective is uh, back next week on TalkSport 2 between 6 and 7 o'clock on uh, Tuesday night looking back at NatWest Cricket Forces Community Day and getting ready for a new season of club cricket at Finchley Cricket Ground it's September ladies and gentlemen Uh, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 